This is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that talks to boats. Welcome back after your summer of boating, wherever you were. We've been plotting all summer to expand our universe geographically and across other segments of the boating world. So here it is, the grand experiment, the power podcast. H-H-H, Harrisoff, Hickman, Hunt. 100 years of the American personal powerboat. The launch, the American runabout, the American speedboat. Imagine I'm looking at a newspaper for 2021, a boating newspaper, with the National Marine Manufacturers Association. The headline was, quote, powerboat sales are still booming in 2021. Retail unit sales of new powerboats in February 2021 were up 34% compared to the same period last year. It could have well been 1921 all over again. Post-plague, post-war, roaring 20s, boating boomed. Huh? Yes, in the year of COVID, in 2020, sales of small boats and engines were off the chart. And back in the roaring 20s, the Spanish flu behind them. The new 20s men and women bought a boat. Brands like Hickman, Riva, Hacker, Chriscraft. Compact powerboats flew out from the factory to new boating families. This was the new age, the age of the runabout. Fifty years before that, a short, intense MIT engineer joined his family company with steam engine experience to help his blind brother meet the new demands of the early Gilded Age customers for launches and tenders for their larger and larger yachts. So yes, there is boating history, not just in classic sail, not just in wood. There is classic power. There is classic vintage power. Just go online and look at the most recent Lake Tahoe boat show. Wood and vintage are the stars of that show. Visit the Antique Boat Museum in Clayton, New York, on the St. Lawrence. Elegant powercraft rule the day at Clayton. So it's not all about wood, but in the early 20th century, the plank gave way to the sheet of plywood. And a revolution in design and construction began. Boats for the masses, accessible to many. On our website for this episode at conversationswithclassicboats.com. Follow along our journey and see the many photographs of classic vintage power. And as we progress into the 1950s, another materials revolution came. We talked about it last fall in the podcast on the Dyer Dow, which in its stern has a small plaque that says, Dyer Resin Dow, the anchorage. Warren, Rhode Island. These were designs made to come out of a mold, sandwiches of resin-infused non-organic fiber and combinations of foam and other synthetics. This was the know-how that made the new, new hull 
of the late 20th century, fiberglass. We'll hear about the handiwork of a fiberglass master who was a homeschooled naval architect in part two of this episode. This new medium of 50s fiberglass hulls, driven by modern power plants, would find an apostle in one C. Raymond Hunt, Ray Hunt, and bring a new look in the revolutionary shapes called the Cathedral Hall and the Deep V. Buckle your seatbelts, put on your driving cap. We'll go on a hundred-year journey of the American runabout in a two-part podcast spanning the 1870s to the 1950s. The evolution of the powerboat of the people, be they Gilded Age or the neighbor next door. We call it Harrisoff, Hickman, and Hunt. 100 years of the American runabout. Three masters of power with a common letter in their last name. But all three are uniquely intertwined with threads of modern boating history that are still with us in the 21st century. But first, as always, a shout out to our media and industry partners to WinCheck Magazine and Media, reaching the most sailors from New York to the Cape. We brought our native Nantucket sailing community the August issue of WinCheck Magazine, which has the article, quote, IOD Reborn, unquote. Our Walter Mitty exercise in reviving an iconic 1959 wooden IOD. See it on the WinCheck website as well, WinCheck.com. Next year, is the 50th anniversary of the Opera House Cup, the granddaddy of the wooden boat circuit. We have big ideas. Our other net-savvy partner, Team One Newport, was the very first to carry notice on IOD Reborn in their recent email blast. In mid-August, Martha Parker stopped into Nantucket to crew in the Celebrity IOD Invitational, which benefits Nantucket Community Sailing. Look for more from Martha at team1newport.com. And a shout-out to Craig Lewick at Scuttlebutt, world's largest sailing blog. The podcast on the IOD article was featured in the August 25th edition of Scuttlebutt. Thanks, Craig. Our mid-Atlantic partner, Spinsheet, got a great reception with the replay of the Dire Dow episode. It was their classic boat story in June. Now look for the story of Finisterre, an Annapolis boat, in their September release. And in the October column at the back of Spin Sheet magazine, there will be a special classic boats page on the J24, 44 years young. And look for our color postcards with subscription information for the podcast. Coming to you at finer yacht clubs, like Ida Lewis in Newport, have a beer, take a card, and subscribe to Conversations with Classic Boats. And thank you to all your loyal listeners as we round the bottom mark to finish Season 2. Get ready for an exciting fall of Season 3. Now, this episode on American powerboat design came to me out of the blue, but really more out of advice from my ad board. Ad meaning advice, my advisory board, the wise people who guide me. 
they are always thinking how to expand our conversations with Classic Boats universe. We experimented with that with the Dire Dow last fall, and the audience responded. Now, how about Classic Power, they said. For every yachting podcast listener, there may be three prospects who own a powerboat. So, instantly, we fall in love with Classic Power, and it's a whole new universe. Tell us what you think about these profiles of known and unknown designers and their rides. Harrisoff Hickman Hunt. We're featuring the Steam Launch, the Sea Sled, the Boston Whaler. Follow along this journey on our website for all the pictures. We'll deal with the first two powerboat innovators first. And then, in a few weeks, part two will have the story of Ray Hunt and his most famous design for the people, the Model A, the Volkswagen Bug of outboards, the Boston Whaler. Itself, a story of intrigue, innovation, boat design skullduggery, and marketing panache. And we start, of course, where we started with conversations with Classic Boats in May 2020, at the feet of the master, Nathaniel Green Harrisoff. The steam launch and their Gilded Age masters. In July 2021, I went back to the Harrisoff Maritime Museum, the HMM, where the idea of conversations with classic boats was incubated back in early 2020. Not to my surprise, it was mightily reorganized since my last visit in anticipation of the 50th anniversary celebration of the HMM coming this fall, 2021. To my surprise, the part of the museum I sought was still placed right there at the beginning of the museum. It was the story of N.G. Harrisoff and Gasp powerboats. Of the 1,300-plus designs in the Harrisoff catalog, many of Captain Nat's early creations in the 19th century tipped towards power versus sail. And some of Captain Nat's most iconic designs came in the form of powerboats. Remember that Harrisoff came from a propulsion, not a boat design, background. Out of MIT in 1874, he went to work for the Corliss Engine Company. It was companies like Corliss that built the large and compact steam engines, coal-fired, that ran the mills and factories of New England. In the Rossi Building at Mystic Seaport, when you come in the back door of that former velvet-making factory, you almost trip on the rows of old, smallish steam engines. These were the machines that ran industrialization. To my eye, they looked like the droids in a Star Wars movie, lined up in rows, long silenced from their former roles making American factories whir. But check out the gallery. I love that image. Although petroleum was on its way in, coal was still king and coal made steam, and steam drove boats. For the bulk of the 19th century, yacht clubs in the Northeast were as much coal yards as boat clubs. I think of elegant clubs like Nantucket or Suwanaka, immaculate classic clubhouses, coal yard next door. Glamorous? No. The reality of steam? Absolutely. And it was in the powerboat sector 
that Herzog developed his concepts of full integration, patented designs, and customer service. Evelyn Ansel, the curator of the HMM, first showed me that back in 2019, with her research on the Wizard of Bristol's manufacturing systems, that the methods that enabled HMC's prodigious output and attracted the attention of budding industrialists such as Henry Ford were all about putting power into place. Now, let's dive back to the HMM. I visited Bristol in midweek. It was just me and an 80s couple from the eastern Pennsylvania reservoir where, ironically, I had sold my third thistle in 1996. The gentleman had recently retired from sailing lightnings after 52 years. For years, I toured the museum haphazardly, counterclockwise. This time, in an organized fashion, I came out of the lobby and the bookstore, and the path was set, clockwise, starting with power, not with sail. It was the same exhibit of how NGA hardest steam power for his elite clients, like JPM, who preferred the quiet and safety of steam, even into the 1920s. Sandy Lee, the mechanical guru of the HMM, who gave me my first tour of the massive 20-foot Reliance model way back in 2015 that inspired my first Winchek article, sums up Captain Nat's engineering-based approach in the introductory video in the lobby of the museum. And I quote, NJH was not just a designer. He was a manufacturing engineer with control at the Burnside Street facility of a massive amount of manufacturing resources for sale and power alike. Power propulsion was a means to an end. It was there to drive an elegant and efficient Harrisoft Hall. Unquote. Harrisoft analyzed and innovated on every size of steam engine, large and small. Much of his propulsion and design work was for the benefit of the U.S. government, from picket to torpedo boats. It was humorously suggested that he had an example of a steam engine installed in the Harrisoft household's playroom, the better the children be acquainted with the family profession. Melville would have understood Captain Nat's special brand of obsession. This wet, windy summer, I read Moby Dick for the first time in 20 years. It seemed appropriate for the second summer of fighting the COVID that I hunt the white whale, at least in print. Prior to his remarkable string of America Cup behemoths, Nat's 19th century quest was for the most perfect engine for his client. Ultimately, one customer got NJH's best work, JPM, the captain of finance. For the Harrisoft Manufacturing Company, it was Morgan, Mr. Morgan. That meant J.P. Morgan, the man who would bail out the U.S. financial system during the Panic of 1907. But long before that, the stories of Mr. Morgan and his annual yacht-buying visit to Bristol were historic events for Captain Nat. No customer of Harrisoft was as visible as Morgan. And Morgan was all about power. Born in Hartford, Connecticut, schooled on Wall Street, 
Repeat customers are important in any business, but not one was more important than Mr. Morgan. Junius Pierpont Morgan. From the late 1880s into the 20th century, Mr. Morgan's visit was something akin to the opening of Parliament or the first day of Major League Baseball. Activity on Burnside Street stopped to ensure Mr. Morgan was being properly serviced. For sure, there were some quirks behind Morgan's purchasing habits. Steam only, please. Why were his orders in the form of steam launches when NJH's friends like Henry Ford were betting the ranch on the petroleum-based powertrain? The inside joke was that Morgan did not want any Rockefeller taking any money out of his fuel bill for a J.P. Morgan craft. The Harrisoff-Morgan relationship went on for 50 years under the name Corsair. And for you finance types, you know that that name persisted into an investment fund for J.P. Morgan well into the 21st century. Indeed, one of the unique exhibits of the HMM is its display of transoms. For example, the wall carries the tail of Columbia, entitled Newport Beach. A disemhauled Corsair transom is the biggest item on the wall, a big oval of prized mahogany. In the gallery on our website, see the picture of one, if not the last Corsair. This, the 30-foot tender to the steam yacht of the same name. This one had a contract date of 1925, length 30 feet, with a delicate mahogany windscreen and combings, and a transom with a lettering of a style and size that could not be missed. Follow along this journey on our website. See the model wall on the second floor of the HMM. It shows the breadth of Harrisoft's work. Some power crafts seem tiny. The miniature launches that went along with a larger 60-foot-plus launch. Now, the captains of industry certainly did not row to their boats, and I'm pretty sure that they couldn't even swim. But if the baronial dock was not accessible, they needed a waterborne vehicle to reach the high-speed launch that took them to Wall Street beginning in the 1880s. At the other side of the scale, through the floor of the HMM, there's a legacy of power that Captain Nat brought to the range of half-modeled crafts that include the U.S. Navy torpedo boat, sporting a mid-prow mechanism off a Greek trireme for launching explosive metal fish, the torpedo. There's often something Rube Goldberg asks about some of the contraptions on these, but the mind of Captain Nat could tend to go that way. Harrisoff's powerboat designs marked the start of a century of the American launch, the American runabout, and the American yacht. All American icons of the powerboat ecosystem. But it was the new century coming that brought on the innovations in petroleum power and new hull shapes. When Harrisoff retired in the 1920s, taking his Illyrian-style cruiser pleasure to enjoy South Florida, the writing was on the wall. Steam and half-model lofted shapes had become things of the past, just as square-rigged ships and commercial working craft had been relics to Nat in the 1870s. Now, 
Now, I originally thought of this podcast like a movie reel, jumping from one era's master to the successor. Captain Nat was the obvious star of the time prior to the media-mad 1920s. From the days of the tabloid newspapers, through that infernal contraption, the telephone, to the modern radio. In comes the 20s. Who were the matinee idols of design? Who ever heard of Hickman? The Canadian, William Albert Hickman, and his sea sled, a plywood-built shape of the 20th century powerboating. The sea sled? Huh? The most influential powerboat design of the early 20th century? This next story, I admit, I stumbled upon in researching other podcasts. My good friend, Peter Taylor, picks up the tale. The files of Mystic Seaport occupy a building of 700,000 square feet. In there are files upon files of documents, drawings, and copies of pictures. Chris Freeman, head of development now at the Seaport Museum, sent a text with one name, John S. Barry. And who might that be? In the W. Blunt White Library were unearthed the John S. Barry Papers, 1940 to 1976. 968 items relate to Barry's involvement as naval architect for the Hickman Sea Sled Company of Boston. John Barry was chief designer under the leadership of Albert Hickman. William Albert Hickman was an eccentric. For 60 years after he patented his sea sled design, Hickman continued to tweak one shape a hundred ways, from a 13-foot runabout to 200-foot-long naval warships, all from a patent of 1914. Hickman designed, promoted, the double-wing hull, the shape that led to today's modern powerboats. Now, there's a mystery that lurks behind the design of any watercraft. By nature, boating design is derivative. We call it, quote, traditional. But in this 20th century, and certainly in the last 20 years of the IT generation, there is a terminology for design and innovation that is seen as unique and revolutionary. And that term is IP, intellectual property. Is that mechanical or is that in the design? Can you patent a shape? These are the key questions. Harrisoff had elements of both in his patent filings, for sure. But he had all the minute details in his meticulous brown books. He had the half model as well. Owen Stevens was a technical designer and parted with his drawings only under extreme conditions. Remembering his refiguring of the famous six-meter goose, that's a good example. In 1938, when the owner wanted a yard not to Owen's approval. He refused to provide the plans. That was his IP. What happens then, when after years, a design emerges that is so iconic that the boating public always assumes that it always looked like that? That it's classic. Hickman was the enfant terrible of early 20th century designers, a bit like Ray Hunt became 50 years later. But in its day, from before the First World War, the Hickman Sea Sled became a classic design. Let's reprise the single-minded and long history 
of the Sea Sled Company, Devonshire Street, Boston, Massachusetts. 1878, William Albert Hickman, born in New Brunswick, Canada, known as designer and manufacturer of innovative fast boats. 1899, Hickman graduates Harvard in marine engineering, about five years ahead of Clinton Crane. 1914, patent issued for sea sled design and propulsion system, credited as inventor of the inverted V-planing hull. World War I, Hickman becomes the first supplier of fast motorboat craft to the U.S. government with its novel combination of double-wing hull and novel plywood construction. 1920s, largest builder of runabouts using the sea sled design. 1957, Dick Fisher and Ray Hunt approach Hickman for a design commission. Hickman says no. 1957, Boston Weller 13-footer introduced. 1967, Albert Hickman dies. Yes, in the 1920s, the It Boat was the sea sled reinterpreted by the original designer many times over. Yet the sea sled was to be reincarnated in the 1950s as the most recognizable small motorboat brand in history. The cathedral hold, the unsinkable, the phenom of the 1950s after Sputnik, namely the Boston Whaler. Follow along on our website for some of the core documents of Hickman's company in that early 20th century. First, the Hickman sea sled design schematic. The picture on the website shows a shape radically departed from narrow canoe-like lines of existing powerboats. Hickman got his design half right before the boom in the 1920s. It was half about hull shape, the sea sled, and the other half an equally Hickman passion a new means of compact propulsion, what he called the surface-piercing propeller. In September 1914, a 54-foot sea sled design with an internal steel frame, four of his surface-piercing propellers, a single 18-inch torpedo, and a three-pound Hotchkiss gun was proposed to the U.S. Navy as the first high-speed motor torpedo boat the forerunner of the famous World War II PT boat. None were built after 1919, but not before this model demonstrated that it could top 37 miles per hour and sustain speeds of 34 and a half knots in a wintry nor'easter with 12 to 14 foot seas. Hickman was not shy about issuing lavish praise in the form of press releases about his own designs. We were amused to read them in the Mystic Archives. Peter Taylor reprises one of them, entitled A Revolution in Fast Motorboats, written by the Hickman Sea Sled Company. And here it is. Within the past 25 years, there has been a gradual development of a wholly new type of power-driven craft known as the Hickman Sea Sled Motorboat. Hickman's trademark sea sled applied, in this case, to boat hulls of inverted Y-bottom section driven by his surface propellers. Translation, he designed a mini catamaran powered by what we would call an inboard engine driving a proprietary propeller 
that sat right at the surface. In modern times, the power plant might be called a stern drive. The description continues as to the factors driving the development of the sea sled. Quite recently, two engineering departments have made it commercially possible for this most radical small vessel to dominate the field of fast motorboats. One of these is the quantity production of good, high-powered, lightweight, automotive-type marine motors with geared-down propeller shaft speeds. The other is the perfecting of dependable, waterproof, bonded plywood. For sure, Hickman had sewn up the market during World War I for military high-speed boats, and he had succeeded Harrisoff in the initial development of the high-speed motor torpedo boat. But he had his own peculiar vision of how they should be propelled. He really did have his own peculiar vision. See a picture of the sea sled on the website in its original plywood construction. Our friend Peter Taylor took the pictures of the sea sled as it sits in the Rossi building at Mystic Seaport. You can see engine compartment in the rear, nothing on the transom. But what happened to that other innovation of the 20s, the gasoline-powered outboard motor? Hickman early on ignored it. Eventually he caved in. Yes, a sea sled could have a transom-mounted noisy outboard, but until that was available, his design was, quote, always best. The Hickman treatise continues. Because the sea sled, compared with the older round-bottomed or V-bottom craft, has an enormously greater weight-carrying capacity for a given power and speed, it is now possible to have easy-riding motorboats that run, in many cases, almost twice as fast as the old models, with the same fuel consumption per mile, and can run at speed in a sea condition impossible for the older types. Yes, uh, he got the right shape right. He got the hull right. But he completely ignored the other major development of the age, that of the portable transom-mounted lightweight outboard motor, being refined by backyard entrepreneurs like Ole Evinrude. Hickman had his own vision of propulsion, his, quote, surface propeller design. At Normandy, Higgins boats were driven by some variation of Hickman's design. But still, today, we would call it a stern drive. Hickman was dead certain his motor and propeller combination was the way to go. His comments. With the surface propeller drive, the motors can be placed out of sight and almost out of hearing in the stern, and the boat can go to sea in any sea. Hickman always thought he had it right. All of this, he said, is a simple statement of fact, but the facts are revolutionary. Hickman would have another chink in his design armor when it came to design. Peter Taylor picks up the account. The Scientific American article of that year summarized the science behind the sea sled. Hickman himself saw the hull as only part of the package. He submitted intricate designs for his concept of a stern drive, a propeller and a fuel-driven engine linked together. But based on the articles and the ads, it was the shape, not the functionality of the sea sled that caught designers' eyes. The Hickman engineers are convinced that the development of a modern high-speed bottom-type boat intended to carry substantial useful loads and to maintain speed in rough water was headed for, for failure from the start. Boldly, they claimed, no possible modification of the general principle of either the round bottom or the V-bottom could be successful in this sort of service. Tell Ray Hunt that with his breakthrough Bertram 31 Moppy in the late 1950s. Yes, Ray, the world is not round. The Hickman Treatise continued, 
Commercially, the sea sled may have arrived 20 years too soon, 20 years before its motors, but the coming 25 years will see the full development of this most revolutionary craft. In his 1920s press releases, chock full of hyperbole, headed by the caption, Facts are stubborn things. Hickman displayed the mix of scientific conviction and marketing enthusiasm that gave the sea sled its position in the roaring 20s for popular high-speed motorboats. The Hickman Boat Company proceeded to bring out a whole line of craft right up to the Second World War. Two dozen models. See the gallery on the website for a view of their signature 17-foot model the one that dominated the company's ads. The ad read, quote, safety and comfort in the open seas. The ads featured sporty families riding in placid water for their outdoor recreation. The Hickman plants in New England produced dozens, hundreds of hulls sold directly to the consumer. And from Sea Sled headquarters in Boston, Hickman worked tirelessly to promote his design. There was a 28-footer with two 200-horsepower marine engines to give it a top speed of 40 to 50 miles per hour, quote, none faster in the open sea and in rough water. And it was the cocky design confidence, 37 years later, that caught the eye of Mr. Deep V himself, Ray Hunt, when he went to take his own stab at the modern high-speed powerboat. Come back to listen in a few weeks, and we'll have the sequel to Harrisoff, Hickman, and Hunt, A Hundred Years of the American Runabout, all about Ray Hunt and the innovations that this bold, eclectic individual brought to boat design. Thanks for listening to Real One. Thanks to Peter Taylor for his historical narration. Thanks to Chris Freeman for access to the Mystic Seaport backlot. Barry and Hickman were mysteries to me without Chris leading me to the archives. And remember, if you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so at the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, and now Spotify. And check out the extended gallery for the Conversations with Classic Boats site with all the latest photos. Thanks to our producer, Griff Bengraff, for giving you all the best in the visuals. Your summer may be over, but Conversations with Classic Boats keeps bringing memories of the season. Enjoy, subscribe, and tell your friends to subscribe too. Be safe, fair sailing. And Tom we'll Darling. Roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang on behind. And we'll roll.